0: If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious
1: thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. Hello, boys and girls, and welcome to yet another amazing episode of the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. I am one of your three hosts. I'm Keith Childs. I'm the author of Several books, including the upcoming book, Jesus Undefeated, Condemning the False Doctrine of Eternal Torment. Yeah, baby. Coming out on my birthday. Heresy. That's right. Full on heresy. Coming to you November 9th, my birthday. Um, available, uh, where, 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 available wherever heretical books are sold. Um, and I am joined by my friends uh, and co host Matt and Jamal. Hey, guys. Say howdy.
2: Hi, friends. This is Jamal. I am alive today. Um, and, uh, obviously, but, uh, I am also the, the author of living for a living most recently. And, um, it's really, really good to be back on the Heritage Capiar podcast with you guys.
3: And
4: I don't want to steal your guys' thunder, but I also have a book and it just came out. Well, I, I got five books, but uh, I got a new oh. book. Um, this is Matt, by the way, I'm sure y'all know. Um, it's called devoted as fuck. And so I apologize for the title. <laughs> But I don't really. No, apo- don't, I don't really don't. apologize. I don't really. I'm just. I'm just saying that. But uh, yeah, go pick that up on Amazon. Uh, I, that, that, that's the best place to get it. You're not going to get it at Christian bookstores or or, or Lifeware, none of that.
1: <clears throat> well, yeah. Life-
4: but you can get it on Amazon. Lifeway's
1: out of business. I think didn't they go out of business? I think they shut their doors.
4: Okay. Well, then you're not getting shit. At that's Lifeway, right.
1: So. <laughs> well. Oh, by the way, I probably should mention that um you the Heritage Capira podcast. We're in a series. We've been doing uh, a series uh, recently, and this series is called culture wars so we're going to be talking about topics that are related to the culture um and uh, this this one's going to be an awesome one i'm looking forward to this episode here
2: yes guys and i wanted to just uh let the listeners know that i've been promoted Ooh. to the uh the manager of the uh hotline mm. for our podcast Congrats. and Way to go, you've earned look. it you've you really earned have, it man. you know you Thank fought
1: really hard and i thought your proposal that you made in the break room you know that day with the powerpoint was really mm-hmm. strong and um thank you. Yeah. So good job.
2: Good job. Yeah, I think I sold the board so on it. Good. And uh here I, here I am. I've made it. <laughs> Thanks mom. Here mom, I'm here. So, uh the number is 240-343-7379. Again, it's 240-343-7379 and I believe we have a gift for everybody today cuz we have a voicemail that came into the hotline. Let me cue that up.
3: What's up, shithead? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh this is Matt from Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I have a question uh, regarding something that's just been bothering me for a little while. Uh, In my Christian walk, or walk, whatever you want to call it, a lot of people refer to Jesus whenever he says he will do greater things than these." My question about this, something that's kind of blown my mind, is, Do you think that maybe Jesus was talking about, you'll do greater things than anything that's previously been recorded that Jesus did? Um, Specifically speaking, the entire history of the Bible, and anything that basically led up to prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. So, do you think that Jesus made a very simple statement by saying, you'll do greater things than these, but actually meant something profound? By saying you'll actually do greater things than anything that I've done and anything that has been recorded in the Bible, I would love to hear your thoughts. Would love to hear what you have to say. Uh, thank you, guys. Bye bye.
1: Well, hey there.
4: Yeah, that's a good one. That's it. and he's referring. He's referring to John's Gospel, right?
1: Yeah, I believe so. John,
4: John fourteen, 14 something yeah. something.
1: Well, I have a very, I have a very something. strong opinion on that on that verse so i don't know if you guys want me to go first or last
4: go for it yeah i have a strong opinion too you go first okay go so
1: it, here's my i really this is one of my pet peeves i really hate when christians will say that like, oh jesus said you do greater things and that's supposed to mean that we will like well jesus walked on water that means we should float in the air fly into space and um whatever you know jesus jesus healed uh, the sick so we should be able to heal or he just said thousands we should be able to feed millions you know with a snap of our fingers or something and I, and I don't think that's at all what Jesus meant. And I think it's easily provable by the, provable by the fact that the disciples didn't understand it that way. And they didn't uh, immediately after Jesus, they weren't running around doing greater miracles and doing these greater things. So I think that's that's a misunderstanding of what he means when he says that you'll do greater things. And actually, again, it's one of those pet peeves of mine where it go to the actual passage and read what is actually said. And what he actually says is, he says that if you... Uh, if you love me and if you follow me, he says, you will do the things I have been doing. That's the first part of it. So the assumption Jesus has is that you'll start off by following me. That's what it means to be a disciple. And you'll do the things I've been doing, which I think is very simply preaching the good news of the kingdom, caring for the poor, you know, caring for the hungry you know, in, in very practical ways. And then he says, and then you'll do greater things. So I think we always want to jump straight to the greater things. But we don't want to do the simple, simple things that Jesus did, um, you know, beyond the greater things. And again, I don't think greater things means greater miracles necessarily. I, th- I think actually it really just means in a, in a very practical way, Jesus was one guy. Um, but now, if we fast forward today, almost 2,000 years after Jesus said that, um, the Spirit of Christ is indwelling millions of people all over the planet. And so every single one of us, every single hour of every single day are capable of doing exponentially more than one guy in one place could do geographically. So, um, and I but again, I think a lot of those, those works that Jesus is talking about, um, are just simply the things that he told us to do in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Uh, love one another, love your neighbors, yourself, love your enemy, bless those who curse you. um, you know, overcome evil with good and those kinds of things. So I think, I think that's what Jesus is talking about.
4: That's my take on it. Yeah. Jamal, you got some
2: thoughts on that one? Yeah. I love, I love when Jesus said that because Jesus is actually, I believe. Um, uh, I, so first of all, I think Christianity totally misunderstands this, the, the Christian religion, because Christ, there's no way you can actually believe that we'll do greater things if you understand that Jesus is exclusively the son of God and we are not the children of God. So that if I think it, his statement that we'll do greater things really is a beautiful way of saying, Hey guys, I am nobody. uh, I'm not somebody that's inherently different than you. Actually, you're going to go on and do greater things. You're going to carry this further and I love it because again, it does challenge the Christian mind to the ch- Christian. Who hears that they're like, Oh, that's hyperbole. Oh, that will never happen. You listen to people who come from, I would consider Orthodox Christian doctrine, and they'll, they'll be like, Well, you know, I'm hoping to be like Jesus one day, but someday, you know, I don't know if I ever get there. And it's just, I, you know, and I understand the heart of that. I just feel like it's, a, it's a tragedy to me because it's like, no, 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 like we're actually meant to live like Jesus and he's not like above and beyond us. <laughs> he is just like us. And he's actually, his part of his mission is to awaken us to who we are, <clears throat> that we are like this. So I actually think that when he talks about doing greater things, is he's actually talking about, because we have more time. There's a lot of things. I mean, where there's more of us, there's more time, but we're actually getting to the root of something. So for example, Jesus fed 5,000 people. That's a pretty cool miracle. <clears throat> that he could, you know, manipulate the laws of or the way things operate in the natural realm. But see, we're so conditioned by the way things out here seem is the way it is. So, like, if you know, if there's a limited amount of food, we go, well, that's all the food there is because we're so colored by scarcity, and that's the way it seems. And Jesus really didn't operate by that standard. So he manipulate You know, he literally is coming from a different place, feeds five thousand people, poor people didn't have access to food, so. What is a greater miracle? Is feeding 5,000 people a greater miracle that happens once? And by the way, they got to eat again the next day, which is another problem. Or okay. is eradicating poverty a greater miracle? I would say eradicate, uh, eradicating poverty is actually the greater miracle. And I actually believe that we can do that. Mm. Um, so we're going to get to the roots of why are people impoverished? You know, You can feed poor people, have soup kitchens. It's all nice, but it really doesn't help anybody long term. But, if you really want to help a long term help people in poverty long term, help poor people long term, you help them see that they're not poor. you help them come out of mindsets of scarcity and you help them understand that they have tremendous power within their being, and when they come into who they are, then they actually can come into the abundance of all that is. I think that's my understanding of a greater miracle, and we get to the roots of that um, in a way that Jesus never got to he He began the work, um, but we continue it.
4: Yeah, I, I like a lot of what you said, Jamal. I, I will add a caveat that I, I don't think it's simply about changing the mindset of the poor. I think it's about um, the the power structures, and and we have to tear down the the, <clears throat> the current power structures that oppress poor people. So, I, I think we would need to add something like that to the mix. But I'm tracking, yes. I think, with with both you guys. Um, on, I like that you tied in the miracle. To the greater truth of eradicating poverty, I like that um to the uh, to the specific verse and the call I think throughout john 's gospel, we have this um, this attachment to Jesus not really doing his own will like he's only doing the will of the father, and so we get this really creative i i of course um look at things through a mimetic theory lens. So we have this imitation, this creative imitation that we are then to follow. And I don't think that means necessarily like being sacrificed on a cross. I think it's more to like what Keith's, Keith and you, Jamal, were saying is, is that we are humbly hmm. serving others and in that do greater things because that is going to... I like, I like thinking of the gospel as a positive virus. Like, it's going to start to put out its tentacles and and start to go out there and and imbue the world with this uh, humble servant ethic of love. And so then it, it explodes mm-hmm. like a virus. So I think I'm tracking with most of what y'all are saying. Yeah. I just wanted to add that. Well, like, it's only found in John's gospel. And there is this real real rich context of what it means to follow.
2: Totally. Totally. And I, I definitely agree with you, Matt, uh, when, when it comes to, I wasn't directing my comments totally at people who would quote unquote be oh, poor, I but I think the power yeah, structures yeah, no. that um, that are set up are actually rooted in a mindset of poverty. Even the folks that are, you know, we have all these institutions and systems that are exploiting the poor um, or creating, you know, play, you know, systems of have and have nots. Those, a lot of those, Come from a mindset of there's not enough, and so there's sure. there's there, there you know there's not an, a willingness to tackle the root of the problem because everyone's out to get theirs, and so a lot of our systems and structures are rooted in that mindset. So it's a poverty mindset yeah. all the way around, even with the, the quote unquote you know filthy rich uh, mm-hmm. in, in our society. So
1: yeah great question, yeah, and totally. and you know what actually this question yeah. is beautiful because it sets us up
0: perfectly for
1: our heretic
4: of the week. It's the heretic of the
0: week. Hi, my name is Deshauna, and I'm a heretic.
1: Hi, Hi. Deshauna. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Deshauna. I'm so excited to have you as a guest on our podcast. Um, so, wow. Um, I guess we should probably kick this off uh, by asking you the first question, which is, Deshana, why is it that some people might think that you're a heretic?
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I think that some people might think that I'm a heretic because I believe that policing in America hasn't changed in 70 years, and it really needs a huge adjustment. (laughs)
1: Yeah. So I the first time I met you, um, we used to do this thing several years ago called Passivist Fight Club, and um, I think at the time you were teaching at Biola. Yes. Um, I'm I don't know. Did I meet you through Tom Crisp?
0: I think so, yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And um yeah, so you came and spoke. We were I think our topic for that particular one was we were talking about immigration and um and social yeah, Yeah, exactly, incarceration, exactly. And you came and just blew my mind. And so I would love (laughs) to hear you share some of these things, which I think a lot of people, and unfortunately, especially a lot of white people, um, probably don't keep in mind when they are talking about issues like, um, you know, uh, obeying the law, and 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 you know why why are people going to prison, and and uh, you know people would just follow the law, there wouldn't be a problem, and uh, all these kinds of things. And 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 you had some really interesting insights about that, especially when it came to race. So um, I just want you to talk about that. What uh, what, what are some things that you've noticed in your teaching um, that you, th- some of the disconnects, especially some of white Christians might have about this issue?
0: Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, I think I remember I had so much fun at Pacifist Fight Club. It was crazy. Um, and I think I like went way over my time because we were just <laughs> having fun. <laughs> um, I think that what I encounter most when I'm interacting with white, I would say middle-class, upper middle-class, uh, Christians, um, is just this idea that like, so police officers are heroes and they're awesome and they're amazing and they're protectors of our society and our community. And so they're never wrong. Uh-huh. They're never wrong. Like what they do is awesome um if there is some way or some reason or some you know we find some one 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 officer that was bad um it's a bad apple it's a quote unquote bad apple in the bunch um and so we need to you know deal with that one individual or that individual activity um you know, super separately than, than thinking about the police force in general Mm -hmm. or the way that we approach policing in America.
1: Yes. Well, and that you see, you're exactly right. And I've noticed this when I've started. So for example, when you have, and unfortunately there is a never ending, um, you know, list of these examples of these kinds of things where a white police officer will shoot, uh, usually an unarmed, uh, black male or female, um, and then the reaction from christian and unfortunately white people mostly is to say well they should have just listened to the police officer why didn't they just do the right thing yeah. uh, you know yeah. blah 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 and then any criticism of the police in that in those kinds of situations this is what drives me insane is always taken as criticism of every police officer whereas yeah. if you would have shifted it if you would have said you know here's another news story about a um a teacher who yeah. sexually molested one of his students? Well, then, yeah. now if I say, well, that guy was wrong and that was evil, and it shouldn't happen, and and the, and the education system, the school should should take measures to make sure that they weed those people out, that they do some training, that they that they uh, you know watch these kinds of teachers and don't allow these things to happen in the future, no one would take that as a criticism that I'm trying to say all teachers are molesters. Now I'm yeah, not trying to exactly. say that. I'm exactly. just trying to say that in that particular case that was wrong and we should do something to stop it. But if I say the same thing about police, um, like, hey, we have a problem in the police department. This keeps happening. Um, yeah. why does it keep happening? And can we fix it? Oh no, now you're you're attacking the police. You don't understand. Yeah.
0: And they have a super hard job, you don't know what they have to do, and they have to make these decisions in 30 seconds mm-hmm. and their life in danger. And I'm like, yeah. Social workers actually work with that same exact <laughs> population without guns yes, so yeah well, that's the thing too. I mean, this is the
1: thing too about like um I've had people say you know exactly what you just said, and I'm like, yeah, so you're right. uh if I was in that situation and I had thirty seconds and and I had a gun in my hand would i would I make the right decision? Well, here's the thing, I haven't had years of training. Um, and I did not sign up for a job where I knew that would be my job. So those guys did, and they have, so yes, we should hold them to a slightly higher standard. You know,
0: what are you saying that to whom much is given much is required? Something
1: like Like that. that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) it it does seem, Uh, yeah, go ahead.
0: Yeah, I, I would just say, so I think what happens, I, I think you have a few different things that are going on. I mean, I, I, t- I totally want to separate in my field. We we talk about things at a micro level and, and, at, and at a macro right. level. So the, the micro level is the individual level. So thinking about individual officers and their actions day to day on the street. Um, and then there's a macro level, where, which is kind of more looking more at a system that is set, kind of set up in a way. That will not be super successful in dealing with diverse communities and diverse populations Mm -hmm. um, the way that it presently stands. So at the micro level, um, yes, it's kind of like if you are given the ability within the scope of your job to use lethal force and to take a life, it seems to me that pro-life people would want those folks to be super well trained um and would be wanting to think about all kinds of scenarios and things that could happen and go wrong because it's so serious um to to end a life um at least that's what I hear from pro-life folks when we're talking about the reproductive rights of women yeah. so yeah. it seems like we would have that same um, vigor um in talking about law enforcement um but it it doesn't seem to be matched in the conversations that I've had um, I think that it stemmed in their own personal experience of law enforcement. So, having been a person that has, I grew up in South LA, so I grew up in in the inner city, um, and so had the experience of what it feels like to be policed in the inner city. Um, and now, as a university professor, I'm in a different um, socioeconomic class. Um, I live in a different neighborhood. Um and so I'm now I, I now have the suburban police experience. Um so I which I think is pretty unique uh, for me and um it they are different, yeah. right? Can you so talk about that. Yeah. I grew up in, Yeah, if I if I grew up in the suburbs like where I live now, um I rarely see police officers. I mean, it's super rare for me to see um a police car mm-hmm. even. Um, but when I do see officers, it generally is like they're responding to a car crash on the side of the road or perhaps a neighbor has called law enforcement because they needed some type of emergency help. So the officers coming to assist. Um, my own home, someone tried to bur- burgle my home and so officers came out and helped my um late husband uh at the time, you know, and cleared the house for us. Um Another time, my mailbox was broken into and and the officers came out and was super helpful, provided some great advice um, and they were just very kind like the the entire approach to speaking with me um it, it never felt like I was wasting their time or anything like that. It was kind of like, "How can I be helpful um, and what do you need from us? How can we serve you better right so if you've grown up and that's been your experience of law enforcement and you also have the ability to completely disregard the lived experiences of other people, then you might feel like this is how law enforcement is everywhere. Right. Um, and so the reality is that like within the field of criminology, there are actually theoretical perspectives about policing. So different agencies have different um, frameworks that they work from even. So some people have a guardianship framework where they are, I am a guardian of this community. Others have a warrior mm-hmm. framework, like I'm a warrior preparing for battle. That simple, and I'm not even getting into a whole bunch of the information, but that simple difference there will change the approach of that agency to the community. It, it changes their interactions, et cetera. As you can imagine, you're preparing for battle. Mm-hmm. You're going to approach, you know, walking around the community differently. Than if you're seeing yourself right. as a guardian, right? So that's super simple. Um, so they don't realize that, like in the suburbs that they've grown up in, they probably have encountered officers with a guardian mentality um, more often. So they are kind of, I'm a guardian of the community. I see myself as a protector of the community, rather than, you know, I have to stay on guard for all of these threats because my yep. life is in danger. And and okay yeah you're gonna you're gonna interact with people differently um you're gonna talk to people differently you're gonna approach them differently um, whether or yep. not your hands on your gun whether or not you're drawing your weapon like all of that is gonna be different like one slight move is gonna be viewed as like well he could have been reaching for a gun rather than he could have been scratching yep. his head yeah um, right so i i I really want to hope that that's where that that thought is coming from. What I would like to offer to those folks is like, you know, similar to Jesus, let's, um, let's take the lived experiences of people and treat them as if they're real. Yeah. Um, let's realize that whatever I experience in my walk of life, it doesn't mean that everybody experiences life the way I do. Yeah. Um, so hearing someone else who is describing a lived experience that is different from mine. I should be able to kind of just listen to them mm. and believe that that actually happened, yeah, <laughs> like, you actually have that experience because I have no information about that experience,
1: right, well, and then see you're you're touching on something right, so um we. Uh, You know, let me just say, I guess, from the perspective of I am I am a white guy who was raised by white people and and grew up in a in a white privileged sort of bubble. And so I understand what it's like when you're watching the news and you see, you know, you read a story about um, a a police officer who goes into a a black neighborhood and and whatever something happened. And um, he told him to stop and he didn't stop or he told him to keep his hands up and he and he put his hands down. And so, oh, so he had to kill him. Uh, He shot him. Um, you know, you typically listen to those scenarios through your grid of, well, hey, anytime I've encountered the police and they told me to do, I just did what he said. And they were very respectful and they were yeah. very, you know, I don't under- So, so this could only have happened if the the person yeah. um, was just, you know, behaving in a totally uh, an unacceptable way. So it's because I, yeah. we don't, we don't not only do we not listen to the other stories, we can't even, we can't listen without the filter. Like, I mean, you can, I can listen to the story, but I'm still going to say, yeah, but you did something wrong. You, You just didn't. Yeah. So
0: true. Yeah. So true. Yeah. And so if you've never actually been in front of a cop and that cop was nervous, scared, or afraid of you, simply by looking at you, you, you really don't know how scary that situation mm-hmm. is. So I can say personally, I have a lot of, I'm, I'm, I'm a former police dispatcher. I have officers currently working and retired who teach for me at my current um, job. I'm friends with a lot of officers and I am still like, afraid is all get out if I'm pulled over by law mm-hmm. enforcement. Because when they pull me over, they're going to see a black woman. They're not going to see like a university professor that teaches criminology with a PhD. But, like they, they, they don't not they don't know yeah. all of that.
1: Don't you wish um, you could have like a
0: t-shirt and, or
1: something or a hat or a badge that just said, <laughs> the flashes, I mean, hi, I'm, I am a college professor <laughs> with a PhD.
0: <laughs> well, I wish, I wish we lived in a society where it wasn't right. necessary, you know? Yeah, but- the implicit bias that is going on inside of their head, um, that real is, is giving them information, whether they realize it or not. Like the, the whole idea of it being implicit is that you don't realize it. So we all have narratives going on in our heads about things. So one of the narratives that we've mentioned already is just like the number of things, the number of stories that you see in the media and how often there is a black or brown person that is the quote unquote suspect of a crime. Even when you're watching just regular Mm -hmm. television shows, I mean, I feel like if you pay attention to the number of people, the number of times a black or brown person is the quote unquote suspect in some, whatever policing or criminal justice television show you're watching, um, that alone Mm -hmm. is alarming. Like, so that alone is giving you information that black and brown people are like innately criminal for some reason. Um, without realizing that no perhaps the producer in Hollywood lacked a diverse team and didn't realize how many images <laughs> they're putting out right. there you, you know like sometimes i feel like i just tell people like watch the id channel for a while, for a little bit because it's based off of like crimes that actually occurred and pay attention to how many times the offender mm-hmm. is white and how many times the offender is the same race as the victim. So, so there's that, right? right? No, you're right. <laughs> like, um, like that's what data suggests is that we are most often victimized by people within our own communities, and our communities tend to be pretty homogeneous. Um, so, if you live in a predominantly white neighborhood, you're most likely going to be victimized by another white person than you are a black or brown person.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, that's really good. And Deshauna, this is Jamal. By the way, it's great to have you on our podcast and uh love yeah. love what you're sharing here. I guess my question for you would be is, you know, because you've experienced, you know, growing up in an urban area, okay, you experienced one type of policing and then moving to the suburb, you experienced experience another type of policing. And and so you're exposed to these two different, you know, mindsets. Um my question would be how when did you develop the passion to say, hey, I want to help? Because I feel like a lot of your work, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of your work is trying to help folks who may be on, uh, who had one view of policing, like the suburban view of policing that have this idea of, oh, it's, you know, there's just one bad apple, you know, that spoils it for the police. But, but you're pointing out systemic institutional problems yes. with policing. When did you become, or how did you become passionate where your work is now to educate those folks at a systemic, about the, about the need for systemic change? Um, how did that happen for you?
0: Yeah. Great question. Yeah. I would say that's, that's part of my work. The other part of my work is, um, helping people from marginalized communities realize that they have a voice. They have just as much of a right to be in these professions, um, and that they have the power to um, change and speak into um, things moving forward. But to answer your question, how I got involved, um, um, shoot, I feel like I'm going to try to make a long story short. So I, would, so, so it starts when I was, um, you know, however many years old, when, <laughs> when, <laughs> I tell my students I'm 25, so I'm sticking to that. Um, (laughs) But when I was um, younger and the shooting happened in Columbine and I was, I was, I'll just say I was a teenager. I was like a teenager. I think I was like a preteen or young teenager somewhere around there. And the shootings happened in Columbine and and it's all over the news because this was like our first, one of our first like large school shootings. Um That happened in the suburban neighborhood, and so it was before school shootings and mass shootings have become just an American thing. Um, I remember like on the news they were doing all the all these different like um news stories about these guys who had committed this um act, and all of them were saying things like... Wow! Like, how did we fail them? Society has failed them. Our their families have failed them. Somewhere, or something went wrong, mm-hmm. and they were like going in depth into their bedrooms and looking at pictures of them when they were five years old and three years old. Right? And, and how the, can somebody, the music they, they, they listened to and the movies they watched? You know, yeah. Yeah. So they started really just trying to analyze, like, how where did we go wrong? And for me, I had a moment of thinking, wow there's something about the geography it must be that makes us question where we went wrong when we're talking about these guys and guys in my neighborhood are referred to as a menace to society or a monster or an evil or person thugs or yeah or thugs. Yeah. yeah. So I think that was probably the early first thought of like just experiencing and seeing a difference. Um, from there, you know, I mean, have, I, The way that I tell the story, I've ended up in a place. I had a master's degree, and I ended up unemployed. And um, I'm a first generation um, college student, so I'm kind of a like I need to make my own way. I need to be able to pay my own bills. And so I was in a place where I was like, "Man, I need a job." And I ended up applying just like to all kinds of jobs (laughs) because I needed income to pay my student loans. Um, And I got hired as a police dispatcher. And this was like so disparate for me. It was so different mm-hmm. um, for me because not because I was a cr- like got in trouble with police as a kid, but just in my neighborhood, um, officers were never really friendly. Mm-hmm. They were um, they always enter my neighborhood with guns drawn, and so I actually was really afraid of them. So the way that officers describe being afraid of members of the community, I was afraid of them. I could be in an establishment like a restaurant, and a cop walks in, and I would start shaking because you know, my experience of officers at that point was that somebody could die, um, or get hurt really bad or get beat up or any, or all kinds of things that happened, uh, with LAPD back in those days. Um, so getting hired as a police dispatcher was kind of, oh my God, what am I going to do? But I'm also kind of in a, like, I need a job and (laughs) the (laughs) bills are due. (laughs) Um, and so I, yeah, it's, it's nothing but God. You know, oh, I incredible. tell the story now to my students because I'm like, the way that God will weave together the tapestry of your life is uh, just amazing. Uh, because I, I would never have written it this way. So, uh, it puts no you in their world, them, so to speak. It's, So it's, it's no me, more it's like us now. Alone, so even. You know, the number one job of a police officer is to help right. ensure officer safety. So, I'm looking out for the safety of officers at that point. <laughs> like, I want to make sure that my officers get home at night um so doing everything in my power to do that so it was it was a job I absolutely loved it was a It was a lot of fun um and it kind of let me behind the curtain, so to speak. I was able to kind of see that like man these these guys and I say guys because it's it was mostly men that I male officers that I worked with. Um, it's still a male dominated field, um, but we need so many more women uh, because women do so much better. They have so fewer co- um, police brutality charges, yep. but that's a whole different <laughs> yeah, that's a whole, a whole different topic. But um, yeah, I was like, these guys are kind of so similar to the guys in my neighborhood. I think that they just don't understand each other. Um, and so from, from that, at that moment is when I realized that, um, that God had given me a gift. Like I, I'm a bridge builder. So I understand those different sides of the equation. So from there is when I was like, so yeah, the best way to, to affect change is to teach people who want to go into this profession. Um, so I went back to school and got a PhD.
3: Uh-huh.
2: Oh, that's incredible. What a story.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. great. So do you get um, pushback? I mean, when, you, when you're when you in your class and you're presenting these kinds of uh, different perspectives to some of your students who don't have your same background and experience and don't, don't have the same automatic assumptions about the police or about the criminal justice system, um, what are the kinds of reactions you get? I mean, what are the kind of things that they say like, oh, wait a minute, that can't be true?
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so absolutely. Um, that is definitely like the first response and reaction is the kind of, that isn't true. Um, what's more information. I would love to see the first 10 seconds of the video. That's, that's always, right. that's always mm-hmm. one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I feel like we, we missed the part where this person, you know, did something, right. you know, had to be. Then, um, it had to be. So when I start kind of, doing things like, well, let's look at Philando Castile, Mm. um, who legally had a weapon. He was very, um, compliant. Um, he informed the officers, like I have a weapon, I have a, I have a license to carry a concealed like he, so he did, he identified, he did everything right and still ended up Mm -hmm. dead in that encounter. Um, and, and then this happens over and over and over and over and over again. It doesn't matter if you're a woman, it doesn't matter if you're nope. pregnant. Um, it doesn't matter if your children are in front hmm. of you. Um, it just doesn't it doesn't matter if you're in medical school like the most recent case have going on right now. Um, it doesn't matter it doesn't matter even if you are employed by in a criminal justice profession, uh, none of that matters in that moment. So you know first it's kind of like talking to them about that and pointing out those things. Um, students are fun. So, so for me, students are fun because they're learning and they are malleable, they're teachable. Um, they really want to know, and they really seek justice. Like they really want to do the right thing. Um, it's when I'm encountering, um, either people that are veterans in the criminal justice world or professions or, um, alumni, parents, those kinds of folks, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, those are less fun conversations because yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they tend to be uh, more static. Like they're, they're just not you know willing to change. So what I, what I try to offer to them is um, I had this, I had a conversation maybe a year ago with, the, with an officer um, who I love dearly. Um, and I was telling him, cause he's like, well, you know, they're, they asking all these questions and they're pushed back and they're not complying. He said, he's saying when he's pulling people over and I said, well, can you show me a member of Gen Z who doesn't do that? I mean, we taught people to ask questions as a means of of developing their critical thinking skills. So we changed parenting style, um, starting with millennials. Like we we told them you have choices and you have options. So when we go to the store, which candy do you want? And, And I remember my nephew growing up, he would really like look over every single candy because he wanted to make a good decision. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah, yeah. And, he, and then he would ask questions about that. So we uh, changed parenting right in that vein. So now that those children are adults, they can't just turn that off. So oh, sometimes that's, fasc-
2: that's fascinating. I don't think anybody's talking about this. <laughs> yeah.
0: Sometimes they're asking questions because we taught them to ask questions.
2: Mm-hmm. They're
0: not, being non compliant. Right. They're yeah, just it, asking more question.
1: Mm-hmm. So, Dijana, do you think that, um, and this may be, sorry, this may be super simplistic, but um, do you feel like one of the major things that we need in our society is um, to just the way we approach training police officers? I mean, is that just Is that the only answer or is that one of the answers or how is it that we could possibly move from this place we are now into a situation that would, uh, you know, allow police officers to adopt more of a guardian mentality than a warrior mentality? Or is there also things that need to be done on the other side, whereas as far as like just the people themselves, um, whether they're in black communities, urban communities or in white communities?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's, there's like such a multi-pronged approach that's, that's needed. I mean, you know, one, I'm going to say that there's, there's just a whole lot of people that need to retire. Mm, yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's just kind of, I, yeah. And I'm sure millennials listening will be like, amen, sister, mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> many, many different reasons. Um, but there, there's just some folks that have just, they, they just present themselves as untrainable. Like you're not malleable, like you're just not tenacid. Um And so I, I think that in any profession, when you've gotten there, it's just time for you to retire. And, and I think that that's fine. Um, you know, I hope one day when I get there, um, I can just like retire somewhere and spend lots of time on beaches. It's my life. It's a good thing. It's a great thing. But yeah, you have some people that are just so wedded to this, um, former way of doing things that, um, I don't know that, I don't know that they can continue in law enforcement change at the same time. Um, I think that policies, practices, and procedures of the actual agencies need to, um, need to change. And I think that they are changing. So LAPD, for example, just two years ago, I think it's been about two, maybe three years adopted. a policy of de-escalation. Yeah. So, forever, people think that, like, yeah, I, and I don't know, maybe, maybe it's because they think that officers are like Superman, so they feel like, you know, the superhero, of course, is going to try to de-escalate before they, like, you know, use lethal force. Um, that actually just became policy maybe two or three years ago with wow. LAPD. So now people are being trained um, in de-escalation. Um, as, as the first line of defense, like the first thing you try to deescalate, then you raise the stakes. You know, I think, um, having more, um, community, more of a community justice model. So having more community members in to help police the police. So rather than just officers hearing, um, these, um, cases of, um, um, use of force that there should be non-sworn individuals so people that are not employed by the police department, should also be able to speak into those yeah. as well so that um, we have a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I think if, if I had a disciplinary action filed against me at my job, um, people that are not faculty members are going to be able to speak into that as well and review that case, not just faculty members who work with me every day. Um, and I'm not saying that, our internal, that internal affairs officers don't work. I mean, I think that they totally can. Mm. I think that having other minds in the room can help you to think outside of the box oh to- um,
2: totally totally yeah well, <laughs> sometimes I'm, you don't even realize that you're in the box right, you know so exactly exactly when i worked in the prison every time we had a use of force uh, it was reviewed i mean you have to file a paperwork for use of force report and then there was um what we call an institutional inspector that would which was not an off they were not part of the security apparatus of the prison they yeah. they, they were they okay. would over over overview that and look at that and um, so that was, that was essential for that very reason. And, we, and, and again, in the culture of it, we didn't like those folks. <laughs> and when we were there, just because yeah. it was such an us and them mentality. And obviously on this show, Here at it's obviously a different, <laughs> we're, we're, what we're trying to do specifically talking to Christians and religious folks is because in, even in religious um, yes. uh, parts of the religious society, there is such, and this is unfortunate because I don't believe Jesus um, modeled this at all I don't think Jesus looked at humanity as certain subsets and you know us and them kind of a right. thing um yeah. and, but that's what we're trying to do is try to try to help people from a religious background and say you know what look we need to start viewing humanity the way God does which is not through these the lens of sectarianism or us and them and you know it would be nice if our poli- this would carry over into policing if this would carry over into every aspect of society I mean literally it would end conflict and wars and all the stuff that we are plagued with in our societies, you know, and so it, it, at a philosophical level it's so important. I think the work you're doing is so vital. How can folks get in touch with you or how can, how can our listeners stay, stay in touch with what you're doing? I don't know if you're writing a book or what you're doing, but how, what's the connection? How can people follow you?
0: Yeah, that's great. So, I mean, you know, if they're interested in going into a profession, they should totally check out, um, Azusa Pacific University's Department of Criminal Justice. We're doing some amazing, crazy, out-the-box things and helping our students to think about these things um, throughout their degree program. So that's one way to find me um, is that website. Um, Then also I am on social media. So Deshauna Collier-Gubil at, um, I think on Twitter, I'm just at Deshauna Collier. Um, I'm also on Facebook. Um, and that's about as far as I can go with social media. <laughs> <laughs> that's far enough, I think. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> my knowledge base. that's my knowledge base right there. <laughs> um, my department, my team, we will be working on a book next year. We're not working on it right now, but we'll be working on a book that'll be looking at um, um, faith integration and criminal justice. So talking about some of these things and some of the practices that we do with our students in the classroom will be shared in that. So I think that, that that'll be really good when we get that going, hopefully in a year. About a
2: year. That's fantastic. Awesome.
1: Well, that's awesome. Well, Deshauna, um, I just got to say, uh, as your brother in Christ, I love you. I love what you're doing. You um, <laughs> I'm so glad you're doing what you're doing. And, uh, and man, I just want to encourage you to keep going, keep doing what you're doing, because I think it is making an impact and a difference. And, and I hope that there are more voices like yours uh, out there that are helping us to see in, in new ways and different ways, uh, and hopefully moving us closer to something where we are honoring people just because they're people and we're not seeing them through these other lenses. And, yeah. um, so yeah, I think it's great. Thank you so much.
0: Oh, Amen. Thank you so much. It's been great talking with you guys. Yeah. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye.
1: Wow. That was awesome. I gotta say, uh, Deshauna, she's just one of my heroes. Uh, I really love her many years ago when we did this pacifist spy clip thing. Uh, was when I first met her and she just, blew my doors off. Um, so very, very excited to have her as her heretic of the week. And I really love guess just, just her insights <clears throat> on this topic, which is going to be our topic for our, our podcast here about um, the criminal justice system.
4: Yeah. And she's probably going to make us all look dumb because she was great. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. I don't think that'd be very hard to no, do. No, of course but-
4: not. We're a bunch of idiots, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's-
1: I, you know, I, I think, uh, well, we were saying you know before, like Jamal, of all of us probably has the most experience with uh, the criminal justice system. Um, not that he's been behind bars so that I'm aware of. but he has. no, you actually, you have been behind bars, Jamal
2: I have I, I spent almost, almost five years behind bars. <laughs>
1: Um, you maybe should explain that. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yes. I spent almost five years behind bars in a state penitentiary in Ohio. Um, yes. But it, go Buckeyes, go Buckeyes. <laughs> go Buckeyes. Yes. Um, but it was at eight hour increments. So I would do, <laughs> I, and you got paid for it. I got paid for it. Yes. Yeah, so I was a corrections officer, and you got paid. <laughs> um, for about almost five years. And so, yes, I, I did work in a prison. Um, but you know, I, I was arrested a few times as a teenager. Cause I, you know, I had, uh, I got in a lot of trouble um, in my 15, 16, 17 year old years. And uh, there were a few times I was taken to juvenile hall. And I, I've been on the other side of that, um, you know, not for long periods of time, but, you know, there were, there were moments of that. So, but the criminal, like, it's interesting because as a young adult, when I, after, you know, after I got out of high school and um, kind of a crazy story, how I even got a job as a, you know, in a state penitentiary as a corrections officer was totally. I was, I was definitely unqualified <laughs> for for that job, um, but the the fact that I started my professional life career, I just don't. I look back on it and i and I see that job as so instrumental, um, for the work I'm doing in the world. Even now, I didn't know that obviously back then, but I just love how all the experiences we have in our life are really in preparation for the work that we're here to do on the earth. I really believe that. And so I got a taste pretty early on as a young adult, really trying to figure out my place in the world. I just was confronted with this. Uh, it, it the, the the problem just seemed so overwhelming to me, especially you when know, you're in there eight hours a day and you just, you're surrounded by people who are at the, you know, they're at their worst. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, my, I, I you can't help for me. It was like, you know we were taught, and we would have this academy uh, that we'd have to go through before we you know uh, got the job so we'd, it was this academy and and then we had probationary period for nine months i mean it was pretty rigorous, but in that whole process, one of the things that we were that was drilled in our head was you can they have a six digit number so when you get you go to prison, every inmate is assigned a number, and they tell you this this is what, at least the way it was when I was working in there like they are a ward of the state, basically, almost like property. They didn't come out and say that. They said, but they are a ward of the state. They have a six-digit number. They are not like you. You, mm-hmm. you, uh, you, you never want to get to a place where you see them like you, because the entire institution is of the prison is predicated upon this, sep- this idea of separation that you, mm-hmm. you are the staff and they are the inmates. And so it's, um, I that really bothered me at a deep level. And I know it wasn't quite sure. Sh- conscious of why that was but it just seemed inhumane and uh really i started eventually i started to see these people as oh my goodness this is where i became convinced in the goodness of humanity was actually working in the prison because i realized they were just like me and underneath that you know, behavior was just pain yeah
1: i think yeah and i think this is uh this what you're saying here jamal this is a great place to start i think is that um Unfortunately, a lot of the failures uh, in our criminal justice system, and specifically in you know on the jail side of things, the prison system, it is sort of like it's not it's not really for the most part focused on rehabilitation. And that was one of the when I was taking a, getting my bachelor's degree, I took a criminal justice course, and my instructor was a judge. Um, and that was one of the things he brought out right you know, right off the bat was that the, uh, he said the failure of the American criminal justice system and prison system is that it isn't based on rehabilitation. Um, and he brought up things like you're bringing up about how you dehumanize people and like you can't rehabilitate someone if you take away their humanity and their dignity. And, and I think that's a fundamental flaw. Like we, in other words, we're so focused on the punishment part of it. Well, no, we've got to punish them as if that's going to, as if punishment in itself is going to either make up for the crime that they committed um, or, or in some ways change them, right? I think we have to get away from this mindset of, of just punishment for the sake of punishment. But don't you think it's rooted in sort of Christianity, evangelical Christianity in America, where it's this pervasive idea that the way to solve problems, the way to react to, quote unquote, bad people – is to just punish them because that's what God's going to do right God's just going to punish them and punish them and punish them and and that's the best way to respond to you know to to sin or to bad behavior
4: yeah i don't I don't know if it's like rooted in Christianity per se but it's definitely the same yeah. I think most of our systems are, are are retributive in that way and it and you're right it's not about rehabilitation that's the that's one reason as an aside that's one reason why when you talk about universalism with justice people don't get it because it's restorative right Right, so there's there can still be justice and reconciliation, and our system, our our prison system, is not set up for that. And and I didn't, I wasn't behind bars for as long as Jamal, but uh, <laughs> we actually had doors. I wor- I worked for county probation. We had doors with windows. Um, I, I worked in the juvenile hall, and I, and I remember, and this is like this pretty much sums up the experience for me. And, and I'm not going to say the the um, the fellow counselors, we call them counselors. Uh, we we were doing a we were doing a decent job for what the system was, but one thing that really bothered me is we had a couple pods that were empty, and I remember a supervisor said, "You know, we got to fill these mm-hmm. beds because that's how we get funded." And I was like, "God damn!" <laughs> I mean, for one, what do you want? What what do you want me to do? You want me to go arrest kids and bring them in? Yeah. Is that what I mean? What do we? For, that, that didn't make any sense. But just the mentality that this whole system I and mean, we had they had probation officers. And those were, I mean, they were, the recipitism rate was so high because it was just like this cyclical money-making machine, it seemed like. And, and yeah, people need jobs and all that kind of stuff. And that's how they sold it as, oh, we got to have money. We got to have beds so we get money so we can pay you. And it, But but the whole mentality was like, wait a second. To fill beds, we need kids doing right. committing crimes. We need, <laughs> we need our streets... You know, with kids in it doing doing shit that we don't really want them to be doing, or at least we say that. But in their minds, that was that was the the way to make yeah. them. And it was just like, wow. Well, wow. this is
1: partly how the how corruption sort of bleeds into our system. So I think I would say that our criminal justice system, our prison systems, have become corrupt. And this is one of the reasons why is because we have these for profit prisons now, which creates a system where. People are making millions of dollars. I mean, it's a multi-billion-dollar industry. Yeah. Billions, yeah, it's a multi-billion-dollar billion industry. But you know, individual people that own these prisons are making yeah. millions and hundreds of millions of dollars. Oh. and and again, oh. they can only do that if, as you said, well, we need more people. We need more, you know, people in these beds because there'll be more people building, you know, free labor so they can be building furniture or whatever it is we're we're, we're selling with uh, this free slave labor essentially. And there, and by the way, there have been. Um, you know things exposed where there were there are judges uh juvenile judges for an example i think this was somewhere on the east coast uh happened a few years ago where a, a, ju- a juvenile court judge was caught um giving giving um you know first-time offenders juveniles longer sentences and sending them to this particular prison be- and he was getting kickbacks because people were making money on this and so it became this money-making thing where hey we, like you said well, the only way we make money is if we, we fill these beds. And the only way to fill these beds is if we have more juveniles, um, you know, caught with crimes, given more than a break. We can't give them a slap on the wrist. We've got to sentence them. And and that's exactly what was happening. So when you have a system that's sort of money, people are financially motivated not to rehabilitate people. That's not a man, good system.
4: Not at all, man. Not at all. and And not to mention that it's particularly targeted against people of color. Yes, yes. Because as as we know, I mean, I, I quote it in one of my books. Um, where's the quote? I got it right here. It's it's regarding the drug laws. Yes. And, and this is going back to 2011, so it's dated. But there were roughly 225,000 people incarcerated for drug offenses. 45% were black, 30% were white, in spite of the fact that white people typically do drugs at a higher rate than black That's people. That's right. But they just don't so that that's so, yeah exactly they just don't get charged, they don't get convicted, they don't get time, and that's just like, damn so that add that fuel to the fire too. and we got a whole system that's so fucked up well,
2: well I you know, I kind of want to touch on something you said, Keith, about is our criminal justice system kind of rooted in our Christian ideas of justice um and I kind of think it is honestly i i my under, my 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 philosophy on this is America is very unique. I mean, there are other countries in the world that have extremely harsh prison systems, you know, that are not uh, rehabilitative at all. At all, Um, but there are places in the world that do have have really good prison systems. Like it actually works for the case of rehabilitation. America is not one of those countries, though, at all. Uh, There is nothing rehabilitative. Even when I worked in, in the prison system in Ohio, it was called. It is still called the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Correction. And as if those two things are, they kind of go together. And I think they can go together. But America, you have to understand that a lot of our consciousness as a society, I mean, we're all products of history. None of us were born, even no no generation is born into a blank slate. We're all affected by the previous generations. Our country was founded by Puritans and uh, folks who had a view of justice that was very religious based, rooted in. Uh, the, the, the flaws of Christianity in that sense. Um, and one of those flaws is the penal substitutionary, like the idea of justice is penal in nature. Um, uh-huh. And that is a problem. That's a huge problem. That idea that justice is penal does. I do believe in our country is, has is rooted in re- religious ideas, even yeah. that's not conscious. So, uh, you know, in our generation today, but it is there. So in it, there's another way to look at justice as we touched on Matt, I think you were talking about this. There, there's another way to look at justice as being restorative. Yeah. Um, and I actually think that that's where we get into healing. There is, there, there's a sickness. When we look at people's behavior as, a, a, a byproduct of sickness, not when we understand sin as a sickness, not as a, a penal, you know, code violation that we've broken a law that's been violated. Not like that. When we understand as a sickness, then that's where rehabilitation comes in. And so there's uh, there's some great prisons. I mean, Portugal is an example um, there. Um, I think it was uh, is it, um, Norway. There's no, some Norway. great yeah. ex- examples of I mean, where they recognize especially with drug epidemics. I think the drug epidemic is very telling of um, why are people on drugs at a higher rate? What's the point of that? And there's been some places around the world that have gotten to the root of that, that there's a lot of human suffering. And when that is, when they go to prison, they're, I actually remember listening to a, I think it was a, some official, some government official in, in European country talking about their, the idea of the, they, she actually came out and said, our goal is not to lock them away, but to actually in, reintroduce them to the fabric of society
0: yeah and, exactly. and yeah, that's
2: the exactly. goal and that's what think, happens
1: yeah and i think that's exactly right and so uh, as you said norway and some other countries um have taken this kind of posture and and, and it, it just backs up to what do you want to do what is your goal overall and you you can decide i mean we could decide as a country we could we could look at our criminal justice system and our prison system we could decide to reform that and say you know what we recognize that it's actually not only best for those particular individuals who are guilty of these crimes, whatever these crimes may be. It could be drug offense. It could even be violent offenses. Um, and say it's not only better for them as individuals if we focus on rehabilitation and returning, bringing them back into society again, it's, but it's also good for our society. It's actually good for us as a, as a people, as a, as a nation. And if we, if we got that mindset, we could shift and we could decide, you know what, because of that, now we're going to make reforms and make changes to our prison system that are focused on, you know, getting to the root of the problem. You know, Do they need therapy? Do they need counseling? Do they need to learn job skills? Do They need to understand why they feel this way, or why they are, you know, have these tendencies to behave certain ways or whatever it may be. And, or they have an addiction issue. Well, let's deal with that because that's, that is a, you know, in other words, like that, that person is a victim if they have an addiction, right? There's something that led to that addiction. They need help getting uh, you know, uh, free from that addiction. Well, why don't we help them? Because then overall, that's going to be better for us as a society uh, to bring them back into the society. And again, I, it's one of these things where we can do it if we want to, and we can even look at other nations and see that when they wanted to and they did, it was better for them as a, as a country and better for the people. That went into their into their system. They came out better people.
4: Yeah, we have that cognitive dissonance, especially here in the states. Though it seems because look, at, I mean, look at Nor- take Norway for example. We look at one of those prisons. I, I think it's called uh, what was it like Bas- mm-hmm. Bastoy? Um, it looks like a it looks like a day camp. And we would look at that and be like, oh, this is they go, oh, so they get to commit crimes and then go hang out on vacation and it's like a day spa and they don't get all their rights taken away. And we see that. And and we have that reaction, well, we're not going to do our prisons here like that. But then at the same time, it's proof that that system of justice is much Mm -hmm. more healthy and much more healing. The recidivism rate is like half, more than half of what it is here. So so people are reintegrating into society and then not committing the crimes that they committed before. And isn't that the goal?
2: Well, yeah. And, and this is where our, our political leaders could, and and this is one of the reasons I do believe, again, our last episode was about politics. Um, I actually think there's some, there's some action needed at the political level to, to, to correct this. Our politician, and again, it's all mindset, but, but it can change can happen. Prison reform is a big issue. Um, in political circles, and I think it needs to be. Um, And one of the things we can do as a a people, as a country, as a society, is to say, okay, look, we don't know it all. As Americans, we don't have it figured out. Countries were – these European countries were modeling their criminal justice system based on America's criminal justice system, and they figured out it doesn't work. So they scrapped it. So we could actually learn from their example and go, what are you guys doing that's actually working? And your crime rates are dropping, and people are like, "We, we, it's totally doable." But I, I actually experienced this personally when I worked in the prison, because I was I was young when I worked in there. I, I I mean, I'm not a big guy. I'm not intimidating. I can't make me feel tall. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) totally. I mean, people compare me to Carlton. (laughs) So, like, you you make me feel
4: I'm a nephilim. (laughs) You make me feel like a nephilim.
2: Totally. Totally. So it's not like I, 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 um, there were, there were officers when I worked in there that were like very intimidating. They would, they would use brute force to get their way. They had a reputation that they, they got spread around the prison, but folks would respect them for that. I couldn't do that. It just wasn't my MO. But one of the things I, re- when I got some seniority, I actually, one of my main posts I ended up working at was this, a post called security control, which is basically like the call of the hole. And so in our prison, um, we had dormitory style, so there were in, they would be inmates would be housed in dorms of five hundred uh, in one dorm, two hundred fifty on the upstairs, two hundred fifty in the downstairs to four officers. So the ratio was um, mm. five hundred to four. And it was, yeah, it was very chaotic. Um, so people who got seniority didn't like to work those posts. So I ended up working when I got seniority, I worked a post where it was two man cells. It was, it was max security, part of the prison. It was the part of the prison where if you got in a fight, if you were doing drugs. If you committed a violent offense in the prison, they would lock you up in the hole. It's like jail within jail. So literally they're locked down 23 out of 24 hours a day, two man cells, And it was in that, I, I preferred that because it was more controlled, and I did not like to be surrounded with all this chaos. So, in that um, security control, these were the inmates that had nothing left to lose. I mean, they were they were locked up, they were in jail, in jail, and they're throwing out feces and urine on the range. They're screaming and yelling. They don't have any incentive of doing anything. So, when I would come in for a shift, the previous shift that I was relieving, the officer would show me they have a log book, and they'd say, "This cell, you know, this guy's." creating a havoc and he's doing all this. And so they would have, they call them yellow marks. So they'd mark this, they'd mark that cell with a yellow mark on the log book. And they would tell me and I'd come in knowing, okay, here's the problems that I have to deal with. And so I just I, and I kind of stumbled on it, but I would just—I just thought, look, I got eight hours to do. I'm going to do it. So I would tell these guys, like, look, if you—if you don't cooperate with me, then you know it's going to be difficult for you. But I, that was not my goal. I'm like, my goal isn't to make life difficult for you. You're already in jail. Um, but I just started to get to know them. It gave me opportunity and space to get to know them and to hear their story. It it took a lot of time, little by little. But I—it was crazy. I remember one day this. This this guy on the second shift I, when I was working third shift I'd come in he goes you know what's crazy he goes this the yellow marks just started going away from the previous shift they just started going away these these inmates that were in there for and someone would be in there for like they'd have a three month or six month stint in the hole a long time and these and they just started to, the behavior started to change and I'm just one guy on one shift there's three other shifts or two other shifts and this the behavior started to clean up for them. And they were like, "Yeah, I don't know what's gotten in." And I started noticing; yeah. those are the folks I was connecting to at a personal level. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. Yes. On a,
4: yeah, on a personal human uh, level. That's right. I always I, I like thinking about all these things in in a like stepping back and thinking of them holistically. So I I like to tie in these kind of things with the theological as well. And and, and I just it seems like the more we talk about issues like this of justice. The the less impact things like, let's say, for example, penal substitution, atonement, Mm -hmm. the, the less impact that seems to have because we can see that version of justice simply doesn't work in the life. The connection on the human level, like you're saying, Jamal, or the stuff that's going on in Norway where it's rehabilitative and restorative, you're like, wow, it actually affects us positively in the day to day as on a real relational, personal, societal level. And to me, like when we can have biblical arguments, we can have philosophical arguments, we can have exegetical arguments, but I think where a lot of the real good meat for uh, um, an argument against certain bad theologies, I'll call them, is in the day to day, in how it plays out in the real world. Yeah. If we're sacrificially minded, if we're retributive minded, uh, our society looks looks yeah. one way, and it yeah, looks like yeah. shit. And, 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 and it's, it's not good when we look at it through 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 like a connecting to people on a human level, trying to restore relationships, trying to heal the hurt, not criminalizing uh, addiction, things like that. We start to see a whole different society that is more healthy, more functional, more loving, more gracious and all those good things. And, and to me, it's all it, uh, some of the best arguments against bad theology is just how does this play out in real Sorry. time? Yeah, that's a good point.
2: What if our prison system is our bad theology being played out?
4: I think to to, to a great degree, it it, it probably is. It probably is. I think, look,
1: you can't, I I don't think we can discount the fact. If we just look at the history of America, right, and and all the different um, religious movements, uh, they have had an impact on our justice system. Even though, you know, like there's such a strong uh, feeling um, among American, just not just American Christians, but I think Americans in general that, well, you know, our justice system is based on the Ten Commandments, which is a very rigid, you know, do this or, you know, off with your head kind of system. Um, it underlies, it underpins the assumptions of the way we have approached in this nation, the way we have approached crime. And and I, I think that's why we have not, as, as a nation, as a society, been open to these kind of ideas of uh, the kind of things we're talking about that we see going on in Norway, this sort of... Uh, uh, restorative justice, but, you know, at the same time, um, whenever you see, like, I, 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 there's a, there's a couple of really great clips on YouTube of, um, like one, one is a guy where he's a, he's a prisoner, uh, and he's in jail for the rest of his life for murdering, um, a woman and her child. And he's just kind of talking about, you know, how he committed this horrible crime and how growing up, he never knew what love was that actually his father would beat him and say, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And that gave him this really twisted idea of what love was. And so he always growing up felt like he wanted to hurt other people around him to see how much could I hurt them and would they still love me? And um, then he ends up committing this horrible crime. He gets put in prison for the rest of his life. And, um, and then the mother of the woman that he murdered starts writing to him, starts visiting him in prison starts showing him love and forgiveness this radical love and forgiveness uh, in a way that no one had ever done in his entire life and it totally transforms this guy and it's a beautiful testimony just to hear him you know telling it and, and and the impact it's made on his life how and it's like yes see that is beautiful and why can't we encourage more of those kinds of things so that people who commit the most horrific crimes we can imagine get to get to have an experience of of that forgiveness and that restoration and that transformation, like that's just a good thing. It's a good thing in general. It's a good thing for that person. And it's a good thing for our society to be a society that sees that as as a goal. Like why wouldn't we want that for everyone? It's just a beautiful thing.
2: Yeah. And I do think it comes back down to understanding the really getting to the root of the belief of how do we view humanity? Are there... Evil people, are there a throwaway people in our theology? Te- you know, not, not my theology, but the Christian theology, uh, not Jesus' theology. When I say Christian, I'm not talking about Jesus, I'm talking yes.
3: about Christianity.
2: The theology of what has become Christianity is that there are evil people, like, um, there are thro- throwaway people that can just be discarded yeah. in hell people that can be discarded and you know whatever and that carries over that's real life implications and so that's what our prison system is these are throwaway people but when you realize when you when you come out of that and you say there are no throwaway people there are there are people who need healing um, but even look at our country's history with slavery this was a belief that that these people were are are really good for just servitude hmm. they're really not at a level of humanity, and uh, I've heard some stats that show that, you know, when it comes to especially like African American community, like they really haven't broke out of this mindset of uh, have they been affected? Like, there's more people, more more African Americans in prison now than were ever in slavery, and I honestly think that that we haven't overcome that. Um, we haven't overcome these belief systems as a society. Um, fundamentally like so it's it just changes language but the way you know why are why 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 are minority communities so affected Mm -hmm. um and why are why are they being locked up at rates that are just not proportionate to to white people and it's it i literally think it's the it's this mindset deep it's not conscious but subconscious um view of um almost like this idea that some people are just um, worthless and subhuman and good for nothing. And this is really, Im- it, it, I see it all the time. I see, I hear it in the comments that people make about people from, you know, minority communities or inner city communities, or, you know, I, I I, I can't tell you how many, even in my own conversations, when I worked in the prison with corrections officials um, that happened to be white <clears throat> and I would, we would call them the, from the good old boy club but to hear how they would yeah. talk about uh, folks of color and uh minorities in prison it's stunning and, and, it, and i don't think a lot has changed yeah i think you're right no i
4: i don't think it has i, I don't think it has and, and and not and not to mention in all of this because it's because our system is so money-based it, it if you're if you're from a poor community you got no chance if you're from a rich community and you got money It's almost like you can buy your way off. I mean, this whole thing, like, like, like. I mean, looking like the banking crisis, one dude got locked up, I think, and it was like a low-level manager or something. And and all these, all these fucking corporate suits, mainly white folks with all the money, got nothing. And people, and and some people got got um, their CEO bonuses, which is insane, and early retirements. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, when their company goes under, and yet there's still people locked up in the states for. For possession of marijuana, for life,
1: right? For life. And then, yeah, to be the the land of the free and the home of the brave, don't we have more people in prison than they have in China? I mean, it's something like we have more people in jail in America than any other free country.
2: It's just crazy. Yeah, it is. yeah it's like one in four, one in four, and five, one in four oh, or five. Right. I can't remember that actual stat of it's, of yeah, uh, behind hot. bars. Yeah, it's pretty. It's a per, it's a country. Right. It's a prison so, camp, basically. The country is. Quarter of the population is locked behind bars. It's it's it's, it's unacceptable, actually.
1: It, it really is, and so when, it, but why? You know, how do we get here? Well, because we see the way to solve these problems: oh, lock them up, yeah, put them in jail. That's the only way to solve that problem. Uh, and it is, but it is, you know, the, the color the color line is is it's very true. Like you know, you see when um, a white person does something horrible, and they get us, you know, they get like two weeks in jail, and then a, a black person does something even less. Yeah, offensive, and then they get like twenty years. It's like, what? Uh, why do we have this crazy system? It doesn't make any sense. So, it, it, you know, it's it doesn't it doesn't take very much to see that we have a, a criminal justice system that is not fair and it's not blind. Justice is not blind in America. Uh, it definitely recognizes uh, ethnicity, uh, your poverty level, your income level. Um, if you're rich, you're probably going to either get off completely, or you're going to get off with paying a fine. Um, or I even mean, if you do get sent to jail, you get sent to one of these country club prisons um, or just get like an ankle bracelet where you basically live in your mansion all day. And, you, you know, you, it's just it's just so it, it's really sick. So at, at every level, I just feel like um, you know, the criminal justice system in America is a huge, huge problem. And I do think it is tied to some of our theological assumptions yeah
4: and and i think and i think it's tied to slavery i think we just kicked slavery yes it i did I, I, I think we kicked the slavery can down the road and yes, and, and then we took away people's rights so if we can lock black folks up take away their rights like and not they're not they don't get their constitutional rights yep. which is basically slavery and we just we just we just changed the, the words yeah we changed the wording
2: it's like a it's like a yes, virus that changes form. You know how like these viruses mutate? Right. This is what it is. Yeah. This is literally yes. what it is. It's yes. because it's, it's, and it's a, f- and I think we need, this is why I think at the political level, we, I be- really believe in think tanks because at the think tank level, even though you have a small group of people that are like, you know, at literally thinking and, um, having these (laughs) conversations at a philosophical level, they influence public policy. Eventually we have, we have like that uh, think tanks at the defense level, you know, with military policy, but we do need, I honestly think that our political leaders or we need to get political leaders or our current political leaders. I don't care who needs to start to at a think tank level, because people talk about, we don't know how to do it. We don't know how to reform the system. It's too, too big of a deal. And so people just give up or they don't, they don't touch it. But like, let's start From the the, getting back to our caller who said, What did it mean when Jesus said you'll do greater things? This is kind of what I think we're we're talking about here. Say, Let's get to the root here. Let's start rethinking what criminality actually is. Let's start rethinking what the goal is. Is the goal punitive? Is the goal to protect society only? Or is the goal restorative? Let's start. We need think tanks outside of the religious box. You know, because people are talking about this at certain circles, but we need our, our, our at the public policy level, people who are organizing, we're, look, we're going to have prisons. That's just, that's not going to go away, but we need to like start rethinking what the purpose is at that level. And that's where I think we can see some real change um, in our country and we need it.
4: Yeah, there you go. There you go. So we're going to carry this, we're going to carry this conversation on uh, in our bonus round, but that's going to be reserved for our lovely, lovely Patreon supporters. Ooh-hoo. So if you want to listen to more of this conversation, join us on patreon.com slash heretic happy hour and bookmark our website so that you know when new episodes come out. And it's heretichappyhour.com.
1: That's right. And um, we have a Facebook group for everyone who is a Patreon supporter of the Heretic Happy Hour, and it's only for you. So if you are a Patreon supporter, even at the minimum level, which I think is like $2 a month, which is, come on, everybody should do that. And uh, you get not only all that other great, cool, bonus, awesome stuff on the Patreon page, you get access, exclusive access to this Heretic Happy Hour podcast Facebook group uh, where we continue these conversations. Um, and I got to say, too, I know I said it at the top, but I have a new book coming out. I'm excited about it. Check it
2: out. Yeah. And I think, guys, um, correct me if I'm wrong here, but um, are we on iTunes now? I don't know. Okay. I think we might be. Does anybody use that in iTunes? iTunes? Yeah. Well, I think you can listen to podcasts iTunes? on iTunes. Um, oh, okay. and, and we are a podcast on iTunes. That's weird. that po- No, right? no uh, that's been That's weird. What a podcast? No, so we can... The, the, podcast? the podcast is not, <laughs> we've been around for a while but we're on iTunes now so you can rate us and review us on iTunes it really helps uh, the, the podcast get visibility so please do that if you haven't
1: right if you do that God will multiply the blessings it'll be the seed of faith that God will then multiply into
4: your life and you'll be blessed yes yes Absolutely. yes greater things you will do by rating and reviewing <laughs> greater things
1: <laughs>